Morning, everyone. Welcome back to another Monday morning devotional streaming on Facebook and on the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Good to have you with us uh, today. Hopefully you all enjoyed a good Reformation Day weekend. Um, I had uh, We were laid up on quarantine, and so we just put out a bucket with some pre-bagged candy at our house, and uh, we went out to check the, the bucket once, and someone had put on our door um, a little bag of candy that said Happy Reformation Day. And so I was really excited thinking there was some reformed neighbor um, around me. And then I found out it was one of the members at our church, um, which is equally as exciting and uh, made us feel very cared for. And my kids were happy knowing that their trick-or-treating was crippled a little bit. But uh, uh, that was our Reformation Day, Halloween, All Saints Day uh, weekend festivities. We hope yours were good as well. Um, we are in Romans 7 and 8 today in the, the F260 Bible reading plan. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. I struggled a lot this morning. One, uh, with daylight savings time, uh, my, uh, kids don't care that it's not, uh, that the time changes. They woke up just as early. And so when I woke up staying up later, we had a late elders meeting and we stayed up later because we're, we're fools and we think that our body magically adjusts to the time. They woke up really early with me and did my devotions alongside of me. But these are two dense chapters, um, in scripture. In fact, uh, uh, Romans 7 and Romans 8 really present and are contrasting what is at the crux of the entire storyline of Scripture. How does the law of God in the Old Testament interact with the law of God in Jesus Christ or with the law of the Spirit, which is what um, it, Paul is talking about in Romans 7 and Romans 8. And Romans 7 kind of highlights this tension of what do we do uh, when we realize that there's a law that binds us, a law that determines what is sinful and what is not sinful, and we can't meet that. Um, and it's what Matthew Henry calls the believer's conflict. Um, that's how he headlines Romans 7. But then in Romans 8, it's headlined as the believer's privilege. It is the solution to the problem that we encounter in Scripture, but more importantly, in our hearts. Not more importantly. Scripture is more important than our hearts, but it, it explains the tension that we experience, right? Scripture isn't arbitrary. It's not just theology for theology's sake. It's the most practical um worldview, the thing that brings the most change into our lives is seeing our world through God's eyes. That's what we've been talking about in Proverbs, where we said wisdom is reading the world through God's eyes. Um, and Romans 8 is also what Charles Spurgeon calls the cream of the cream in scripture. Um, one of the richest chapters um, describing the application and our stretching our understanding of what the gospel is. And actually, I think there's um, an inclusio, which is just a literary term that kind of means an envelope in this passage. And that's because this passage, if we're just looking at the summary, um, begins in Romans 7 with this illustration from marriage. Um, and Paul is basically saying that you know that a person is bound to his spouse as long as his spouse is alive. But when that spouse dies, that person is freed from that law and is free to marry another. And uh, it goes into and begins to describe the problem of relationships we have between our first spouse, which is the law, what we were first bound to. And then as it progresses and at the end, there we see this freedom, right? We are free, picking up on that freedom language that Paul gives in Romans 7, that you are no longer bound to that law when the spouse dies. You are free to marry another. Um, and this is really important because Paul is writing um, to a church that's kind of confused on the uh, how does this Jewish 
understanding of scripture match with the Christian understanding of scripture, seeing that Christ fulfills the law. And what he's doing here is he's basically saying to those who are Jews, he's like, no, no, no. Um, they're the, you've been set free from what this says. This isn't an issue of adultery. The Jews who are now worshiping Jesus are not committing adultery on God's law in the past, but there has been a new freedom and a new spouse that has been given in the gospel. And we see that uh, in Clusio come. It starts with a, a story of a marriage and a death and a remarriage. And it ends with this wonderful picture of Christ's love for us, right? In Romans 8, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8 or 837 says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so this issue of marriage, this problem that we encounter with our first spouse is going to be solved by the overwhelming love of Jesus in our lives. And it puts us under a new law, a new code of conduct, a new barometer of affection. And that's what Romans 7 and 8 wants to explain for us. So uh, I also struggled um, just because there's so many good things that are in this text. And so I tried to just kind of pick up on the biggest things that stood out to me when we look in our three places. We look up, we look in, and we look out. And so in looking up, um, there were two things uh, that I saw that were helpful for us. One is we, in looking at God, we see God's relationship to the Old Testament law. And we also see God's relationship with the law of life, right? Those are the two things that are being contrasted from God's perspective in this text. And this is so important. We've talked about this a lot in the New Testament letters is most of us don't understand how God interacts with the law. We either say there is no law and that's antinomianism, right? Anything that reeks of uh, commands in scripture needs to be jettisoned. And that's wrong because we see in this text, there is a law. We are bound under the law of the spirit. Now the law is not removed, but the kind of law that is removed um, is important to understand. But then on the other side of antinomianism is legalism, saying that we must do all of these commands. And to do these commands means that we are Christian. If we obey God well enough, we will earn God's favor. And so legalism and antinomianism are kind of the two ditches on the side of this faithful path of understanding God's covenant rightly. And I think um, evangelical Christians typically trend to lean a little more towards antinomianism of uh, we see how Paul often speaks of the law and the law is bad. Anything that is in the law is just miserable. The law is just a, a symbol of works-based righteousness. Um, but what's interesting to see is, is notice how Paul speaks of the law in this text. In one sense, he is showing some sort of failure. But look at the language he uses when he talks about God's Old Testament law. Look at verse 7 of chapter 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? He says, by no means, meganoito in the Greek, this really emphatic phrase. Um, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Look also in verse 10 um, at what he says here. He says, the very commandment, that's the law, that promised life proved to be death. And so God in giving the law didn't just condemn Israel by giving the law. The law was not bad news um, 
what's not exclusively bad news to Israel because the law was meant to bring them life. The law was meant to put up the guardrails of what it looked like to live inside the blessing of God's covenant. It was meant to keep redirecting them like dumb oxen uh, towards God's grace, towards God's wonderful life he had for them in the promised land. And then also consider verse 12 where he says this, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is not bad. We are bad. We are unable to keep the law. And so when Paul begins to talk, because he talks about the failings of the law in this text, doesn't he? Right. That's how Romans 8 opens up is he's talking about these um, failures of the law. And yet um, the law fails because we fail. Our failings of sin make the law ineffective because the law can't change our hearts. The law can't cause us to obey it. And that's why the law fails. The law doesn't fail because God tried option A in the Old Testament and the law was really just a terrible solution. Um, and God needed to find a better solution. No, no, no. The law was good and holy and perfect. The problem was with us. The problem of Romans 7 is not with God's holy law. The problem is God, with God's unholy people. God God's picture of righteousness, God's ideal for this world is better than ours. But the problem of sin is that we don't want to choose it. We don't want to live by it. We don't want to submit to it. And so the law is ineffective because it couldn't make us faithful, even though the law in and of itself is holy and good. And so that's God's relationship to the Old Testament law is uh, it was limited, not because the law was limited, but because we were limited. Our limitations showed the limitations of the law because of our sin, not because of the law's failings. Um, and then we see, because of that, God needed to do something. He needed to create a law that was limitless, a law that had a profound effect, not just to bind, but also to renew. And that's God's relationship to the law of life. And that's where we get to um, in Romans chapter 8, where there is this new law, this life in the spirit, where Romans 7 is the believer's conflict. We can't obey well enough. Romans 8 is the believer's privilege. We have new life in this law of the spirit of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where I just want to read for us. My wife um, and, and uh, several ladies who she's doing discipleship with at the church are memorizing this. So if you're watching, uh, here's your quiz for today. But just listen to the way in which this problem is solved, this conflict is solved in this new work of Jesus Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. See, that's why the law had to be amended, not because the law was ineffective, but because sin made it ineffective. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And so what the law couldn't do in reforming us to desire God's good blessing, to desire to follow and to worship the God who saves us, this law of the Spirit in Jesus Christ does. And how does it do it? By killing us. 
That's the interesting thing when you look at the opening illustration of marriage. When he's talking about us, he's not saying, all right, you're in this first marriage and your first spouse dies. Now you can marry the next spouse. That's how he sets it up. But what's unique is he said um, in verse four, likewise, my brothers, you have died. He's not saying the law died. He's saying you died. And that is immensely good news for you because now through being uh, through being put to death in Jesus Christ, you are also brought to life in Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ. You are now wed to Christ who fills you with this spirit. This, this uh, when we were in Deuteronomy and we see glimpses of it in Proverbs, right? In Proverbs, he says that I will put wisdom into your heart. In Deuteronomy, he says you'll be circumcised with a circumcision without hands where the law applied holiness from the outside and pleaded that we would obey it. This law of grace in killing us in Jesus, burying us with his death brings us to life in the Holy Spirit. So we have new affections for Jesus. Jesus, we die in Christ. Christ takes our punishment for our sin and he gives us life in the spirit. And this is drastically Trinitarian. We saw in Romans 8 that it is God who does this. God the Father's plan is to remake us by killing us in Christ and raising us in the spirit. But look at Romans 8 verse 27 where it says this, um, and he who searches the hearts and minds knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for his saints according to the will of God. Now we have the spirit who is actually working inside of us. It is not the letter of the law, but it is the letter of the spirit. It is interceding. It is working on our behalf. It is doing what the law in its stone tablets could not do of actively helping us before God. But then also see in verse 34, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so not only has God done this, but how has he done it? He has done it by sending his spirit to intercede for us. He has done it by sending his son to intercede for us. In this covenant of grace in Jesus Christ, we do not have an ineffective partner like the law, but we have the very um, presence of a triune Godhead laboring, interceding, loving, and stirring us to live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, just like any good spouse, whoever, whomever you are married to, you set your mind on that person. And the wonderful transformation of grace is that we get to set our minds now on God. We get to set our minds on the spirit of life. And how do we do it? By God working in us, by giving us his own spirit and his own son who whispers to us the wonder of redemption, who puts in our hearts where it says, we now cry, Abba, Father, by the work of the spirit. We have a new new honing beacon in our lives that brings us to God through the work of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we see this relationship to the Old Testament law and the new covenant law in this, in that Christ brings us and puts us under a new law, not by our works, but by his works, not by our life, but by his death. And so this is where we now begin to look in. Um, what is our relationship to the Old Testament law. That's where we first want to look. We want to look at what is this saying about us? Well, just as we saw God's relationship to the Old Testament law and now God's relationship to the New Testament law in the law of the Spirit, what does this mean for us? Um, Paul has this uh, unique uh, and kind of hotly debated portion of scripture in the end of chapter seven where he is describing this conflict. He's kind of saying, you know, when I want to obey the law, 
in wanting to obey the law. I don't really want to obey the law because I want to sin. So in obeying the law, I'm doing things that I don't want to do. But when I sin and I'm doing things I want to do, I'm not doing things that I should do because the law is what I should do. And he's describing this conflict of I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. Um, and he, he expresses the tension of what it's like to live as someone who sees their sin, um, but also who sees grace. And it makes me think of... Um, uh, in Aladdin, most of my illustrations come from Disney movies. Uh, in Aladdin, the the Jafar, um, he ultimately realizes that if he wants to be the most powerful being ever created, he must be a genie. And so uh, Aladdin tricks him at the end by saying, you'll never be as powerful as genie. And Jafar realizes that. And so he wishes to be made into a genie. And he does. And he gets all of this power. But then what happens is... Um, the genie has this line where he goes, the, the problem of being a genie is phenomenal cosmic power and itty bitty living space. And so they have all of this power and yet they get these shackles of slavery and are confined to this lamp. And the genie, if he wants to have this phenomenal cosmic power, what comes with it is also this bondage. And that's the tension of works-based righteousness. We certainly can look at our lives and say, I have the power to do what is good. And we could begin to work towards that and justify ourselves by our own performance. But the problem is, is once you play by those rules, once you live by the, the idea that you have this phenomenal cosmic power to please God on your own, you get the shackles of the whole law. Meaning that when you start to justify yourself by the law, you have the whole weight of the law that also stands to condemn you. It's a, you can achieve um, moral perfection in nine out of 10 areas of the law, but to miss on that 10th area is to be bound by the punishment of the whole law. It is pass fail. And in workspace righteousness, we encounter this tension of wanting to do what is good, but realizing that it's a crushing weight. And this is where um, we encounter that the law convicts us. Right? When we read of God's moral commandments, when we read of how it is we're supposed to respond, the law actually convicts us. And that's what Paul says. I'm grateful for the law because without it, I wouldn't have known that stealing is wrong or coveting is wrong is the example he gives in this text. Um, and this is where being convicted of sin, which as a new covenant believer, you're going to be convicted by sin. You are going to run up into the boundary of God's moral commandments, whether it's in the Old Testament law or it's in the new covenant law. And in those moral commandments, um, commandments, we need to understand what do we do with this conviction? Because conviction could be bad. It could lead us to withdraw from God, to run further and further away from the one who wants to heal us and do something with that conviction. But just as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, that that conviction actually pushes him to go to God. And, and he actually uses this term. He says that the law brings conviction beyond measure, he says in chapter 7, verse 13. Um, I was measuring, uh, we're trying to do, uh, build a detached garage at our house. We need to know property boundaries. And so I got my tape measure and I went to go measure my property boundary and the tape measure ran out before I got to the end. And all I knew at that point was, I don't know how far my boundary goes, but it's more than I can measure. And that's what the law does with our sin. Like we could pour out the whole of our, of the law upon us and our sin would still be immeasurable so much more than we could ever imagine. We cannot quantify how sinful we are, but the tension is, and the release comes when he says, uh, at the end of his, um, 
wondering, what does he do about this? He says, who can deliver me from this body of death in verse 25 uh, or in verse 24? And then in 7 verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The solution to those who are convicted by sin, the solution to those who are trapped in workspace righteousness is to take those limitations and those convictions and to go to God through Jesus Christ and to see what Christ has done. And this is where we understand that conviction is not always bad when we know where to take it. And when we take it to God's law um, in Christ, we see our relationship to the law of the Spirit. Our relationship to the Old Testament law is that we're going to run into conviction and we're going to wrestle with work-based righteousness. Um, but our solution to the, or our relationship to the law of the Spirit um, is that we have in Christ freedom abounding. We have new life according to the Spirit of God. And if you read chapter 8, you see that we are raised with Christ. We are heirs with Christ. We have been set free to be bound to Christ in a wonderful way. And actually, this um, there's something astounding in this text that is easy, I think, to skip over. And that is how profound... Our freedom is in Jesus Christ to be set free from sin, to now live according to the law of the spirit, which regenerates from the inside um, is so astounding that it's actually what creation itself is waiting for. Look with me at verse 19 um, for the creation that is the rocks and the hills and the birds and the, the elk that you're out hunting um, right now. It says they are waiting with eager longing for the revealing of, of the sons of God. Excuse me. Creation is eagerly waiting for your redemption. The hope of creation is that your freedom in Jesus Christ is so pervasive and so profound that they actually take a benefit from it. Um, you see this also in verse 21. Um, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation's hope is in the astounding, abounding, and overflowing redemption that we have as children of grace. Creation has not sinned. That's what um, Paul is saying creation was bound because of our sin, and yet creation's hope is not um, a gospel unto creation, unto the rocks and hills. Creation's hope is the gospel applied in the life of a believer. Your freedom is so profound that not only is it your hope, but it is the hope of every created thing in this world, inanimate and animate. Our redemption in Jesus Christ is the profound hope for everything. We have been set free from sin and made alive in Christ. And on that, we have a wonderful longing and an immense transformation to worship God, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And that is the future hope of glory that is held out for us, that even though right now we are set free, we are not yet fully free. We wrestle just as Paul talked about, we wrestle with our flesh because even though our spirit has been made new, our flesh has not yet been, re been made new. We have not been fully and entirely redeemed, but that is the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, which Paul is proclaiming in Romans chapter 8. And this is where when we understand our relationship to the Old Testament law and our relationship to the law of the spirit, we realize the vast, wonderful, um, unfathomable gift of redemption that is ours, this recreation in Jesus Christ. But we also understand that this life isn't going to be easy. 
And this is where Romans 8 concludes. This life is going to be hard. Why? Because we still live in this tension. Our tension is not in we want to obey the law, but we can't because Christ has solved that. But now our tension is we are fully redeemed by Christ, and yet we are not entirely redeemed by Christ. We still wrestle with the desire to sin. We still wrestle with the pains of this world, with the growing pains that creation has. We as believers have that all the more in our bodies, longing for the new heavens and the new earth. Every time you stub your toe, every time you feel the weight of this world, what you're experiencing is this longing for the world as it will be when Christ comes back to bring us home to the new heavens and the new earth. And all of our needs are met in Jesus Christ. So what do we do in this already but not yet? What do we do having been wed to Christ, but not having been fully and entirely redeemed by Christ? Well, there's two things we see in looking out, right? We look out, how does this change the way we live? Um, first, we pray. We pray profound prayers. We pray spirit-driven prayers. And this is what I love. Um, uh, look at with me at verses 26 in Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Do you want to be helped by the Spirit today in your weakness? Do you want the Spirit to actually aid you in every place where you're weak? Well, look at what you ought to do. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so here's what we see. If you want help by the Spirit, there are times where we just need to humble ourselves and we need to pray. And we pray knowing that the Holy Spirit is going to make sense of all the things we don't understand. We don't know what to pray for. We don't understand um, the limitations of our flesh as we ought. We don't understand the glory of God as we ought, but the Spirit does because he knows both us and he knows God. He is this wonderful bridge between um, creation and creator. And this isn't saying that we have discovered some mystical prayer language that we begin to groan in and that's where we become holy. What it means is that we should eagerly and often go to prayer with humble prayers, knowing that God will lead us to pray for what we ought. And knowing that even if we mutter in broken and incomplete sentences, um, just like my, my 10 month old daughter has a limited vocabulary to express what is wrong, like a good father, I'm able to discern in her broken English what she really needs. Um, the Holy Spirit is what allows God the Father to know what we need even in our broken words. And so when life is hard, we pray and we pray knowing that through the Holy Spirit and by God's good care for us as the great Abba Father, he hears us. And what is the response of all of this? Like what is the end to our prayers? Well, we see this as it continues in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a great coffee mug verse, but do you realize he defines what that purpose is in verse 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what does our prayer life lead us to believe? What is the relief that comes through our prayer? And so we realize that God's goal for us in every aspect of life is that we might become more and more Christ-like, that we might, by the law of the Spirit, be conformed more and more into Christians who represent our namesake, into Christians who look like Christ, 
when gazed upon as a public spectacle, when those who smell like Christ when crushed in the crucible, and those who love like Christ when pressed by hostile culture. And so when we encounter these hardships of life in this already and not yet, we know that in all things, that is all things, God is making it possible for you to actually become more Christ-like, to act more Christ-like, to by the power of the conversion in our hearts, live out a new law because Christ has given us new life. And so when we pray, our hope is not in the removal of what is hard, but actually in the conformity to what is good in Jesus Christ. And so we, we ought to pray for that today when life is hard, when we're worried about elections tomorrow, when we're worried about our jobs in a pandemic economy. Might we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Father understands our need to be more like Christ, and through the indwelling life he gives us in the Holy Spirit, might he empower us to be conformed so that we might, because we are justified, and that one day we might be forever, eternally, and finally glorified. And so that's number one in looking out as we pray. And then number two, we mind the depths of the gospel. There are a series of questions that Paul asks at the end of Romans 8 um, that I don't think we'll ever understand the weight of them. Uh, I'm always astounded by them when we read it. And I just want to read it for us today, um, beginning in verse 31. What shall we say? If God has done all these things, what shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And the point is, if God has justified us, what else can justify us? We don't need justified, for God has done it in Jesus Christ. Who is it that condemns us? Who is it that says that your life is a miserable failure? Well, none other than Jesus Christ, right? Our life is measured not according to our righteousness or the righteousness of our neighbors. Our life is measured in accordance to Christ who kept the full of the law. 10 out of 10, not 9 out of 10 or 7 out of 10 or 6 out of 10, not 9.5 out of 10, but 10 out of 10. If anyone condemns us, Christ ought to condemn us and say that you are a miserable failure. And yet he says this, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding um, for us. In other words, the only person who can condemn us now stands to intercede for us. What a profound statement. When we encounter the condemnation of our hearts and the condemnation of our world, there is only one person who can actually condemn us. And he, if we are in him, has chosen, chosen instead to die for us, to face condemnation in our place. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or pandemics or elections or temperamental weather in uh, Montana fall? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us to the new spouse who wins us by his own blood. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the cream of the cream. In verse 31 through following, do you hear Paul's thought? There is not one aspect of this life, not one question that can be presented to him, not one challenge of his soul, not one aspect of creation, whether past nor present, nor created, nor angels, nor human, nor anything else that can compare to what Christ has done for them in the gospel. If we want this immense hope, are we willing to mine the depths of the gospel like Paul, to find the warmth of love 
and the security of confidence in Jesus that only comes when we begin to assess every aspect of our world through what Christ has done to redeem us from the law, from the debt we owed to sin, and to bring us back to God. And so let me pray for us this morning um, as we seek to live out by the power of the Spirit this new law and we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that the questions Paul presents in Romans 8 verse 31 through the end of the chapter are not questions we read on a page, but they're questions we consider when the hardship of life in this um, groaning world uh, press against us. That we would also consider that the present, um, uh, present groanings of this world are nothing compared to the eternal glory which is for us in Jesus Christ. And that in realizing that we might seek to live according to the law of the Spirit. That we might seek above all things to be conformed more and more into the Christ who has redeemed us by dying for us. And who has wed himself to us in order that we might be satisfied deeply and richly in him. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. We will see you next week.